Romans chapter 1, verse 14, you'll note that Paul says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then if you flip forward to chapter 8. Chapter 8, and we'll read a section beginning in verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then flip forward to chapter 15. And let's begin in verse 25. Where Paul writes, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have made partakers, have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 27, chapter 15. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We noticed in our last study that part of the glory of salvation is that we have a debt that has been paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. I made reference in that study to my student days. If you know anything about going to college these days, you know that it's expensive. Not many people can just uh, do that out of pocket. Usually you have to take out loans to cover tuition, and that was certainly the case with me. And uh, along the way, those Loans started to accumulate somewhat. I'm actually grateful to the university that they have you sit out for a period of time. If that debt goes too high, they uh, advise you to take a semester off at least and pay it down somewhat, which I did do. And along the way, there were times when that debt felt insurmountable, but I would console myself 
in thinking, well, I actually have a much greater debt than this that I could never pay, and that is my sin debt. Could never pay it. Uh, not eternity in hell can pay that debt. But along comes Christ coming in my place and in your place. And he offers himself to the Lord. He is the propitiation for our sins. And as a result of that, that debt is paid and it's paid completely. It's paid in full. Uh, there is nothing for us to add to it but to receive the benefit of it. A little bit, I suppose, like taking out a loan from the bank and the only terms that that bank presents to you in giving you that loan is that you just reach out your hands to take it. That's kind of how Christ has paid our debt. Um, nothing for us to add to it is ours but to receive. But as we noted in our study last week, the payment of that debt does bring upon us another kind of debt, not one that becomes an oppressive burden, but one that we most willingly and desirously should be willing to pay. The Apostle Paul certainly felt uh, his obligation to that debt, and that's why he wrote in Romans 1 and verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, and we pointed out in our study last time, and this is as far as we got, that a part of repaying this debt, paying this debt of gratitude to God, comes through the responsibility we have to communicate the gospel uh, with every opportunity uh, that God's providence affords us. We are debtors, and we considered how Unlikely and unusual it would be for Paul to have a debt to Greeks and barbarians. What did he have to do with them? Are they with him? Well, he shared a common humanity with them. He also shares a common depravity with them. A common need, you could argue, he sensed with them, which is the same for us and those around us who are unsaved. We have a debt, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So we pay the debt by sharing this gospel uh, on every occasion that God affords us. I think we focused on Wednesday on the theme of open doors, looking to the Lord to open doors for us, not attempting uh, in our own strength or in our own wisdom to try to force open a door, uh, but to seek the Lord. And this is something we do well to follow up on in our praying. Oh, Lord, open doors for me that I can pay my debt to thee of giving the gospel. Open doors, O oh Lord, to people that will be willing to hear it, uh, whose heart you will open and draw them to thyself. So that's the first debt, then, our debt to the world. And we come then to consider uh, the second aspect of this debt we have to the gospel, and that is a debt to the Spirit. Okay, look with me in chapter 8, if you will. This is the second uh, passage we read from 
where we find the occurrence of this word debtor. Chapter 8 and verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Paul's employing a rhetorical device in this expression where less is said than intended, but the meaning is very clear. We are debtors not to the flesh, but by implication then, we're debtors to the Spirit. And look with me if I could just read these verses again and notice the emphasis on the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 really is a, a key chapter when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, we read in Romans 8, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. You see the contrast here between the Spirit and the flesh? And we are debtors, Paul says, not to the one, to the flesh, but by implication to the other. Not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. Now the nature of this debt becomes clear when you recognize the forces are what you might call the spiritual laws that are in motion in the believer. And Paul expounds those laws in the previous chapter, chapter 7. If you're open to chapter 8, just look back uh, across the page or back a page to chapter 7, verse 21, where he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That's something we do well to keep in mind. We've been focusing on the truth of that text a little bit in our Sunday school class where uh, Christian has been uh, in discussion with Hopeful. Hopeful has given his testimony, uh, thinking initially that he would be all right by simply reforming his life, letting go of bad habits, trying to establish better habits when it comes to living, but then coming to recognize that even with a thorough reformation of life, that's not enough to make you acceptable to God. And why would that be? Well, because of this law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Even our uh, greatest, most zealous feats performed for the Lord still need cleansing, still need the purging of the blood. Continuing on, Romans 7, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. 
So there's a battle taking place in the apostle's soul. The, the law of the presence of evil, which is also called the law of sin. And you have also the law of God, or it's called in verse 23, the law of the mind. And a battle is described in this section within the believer. The battle is between the old nature and the new. And chapter 8 makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit really becomes the determining factor in the outcome of this battle. Paul describes the Spirit's work as a law also. You look at chapter 8 and verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. If you could just consider that in the context of the preceding verses in chapter 7, where Paul concludes that chapter by saying, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There is within me this law, the law of sin, the law of the flesh, the law of the presence of evil, and it's warring against the law of my mind, and it's brought me to the point where the things I desire to do, I don't find myself doing, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, somehow I find myself doing them anyway. And that leads to the statement of verse 24, O wretched man that I am. The battle within the heart of the believer between the flesh and the new nature can bring us to a point of wretchedness. And what will determine then the outcome of such a struggle? He says it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, in stating our indebtedness then to the Spirit, Paul is emphatic in expressing where our debt does not lie. He's expressing uh, the matter negatively here. We are not in debt to the flesh. We are to walk not after the flesh, verse 4. We are to mind not the things of the flesh, verse 5. We are to live not after the flesh, verse 12. The flesh, of course, speaks to us in this instance of our sinful nature. We are not to be in debt to this nature because this nature is the nature of death, verse 6. And because the carnal nature is enmity against God, verse 7, and because this nature cannot please God, verse 8, so we're not indebted to the flesh. You owe it nothing. Our sinful nature, you know, would be a cruel taskmaster that seeks to enslave us to our passions and drive us to destruction by those passions. Do we not see the full force of such a power in the world around us? The drunkard, the drug user, the immoral man, fulfilling lusts, forsaking responsibilities, striving at first for pleasure, but eventually striving just to escape misery. That's the direction that sin takes you. That's the direction that the flesh lures you to. Seems very appealing in its initial temptation. 
And those who engage in it find it to be so. Quite pleasing is sin to the flesh. But it does reach a point, and I used to see this routinely every month when I had opportunity to go to the rescue mission downtown and preach to the homeless men there. Uh, there was a fairly uniform testimony among them that sin had cost them everything. Their jobs, their marriages, their families, their children, it cost them everything. And yet, so many of them still felt indebted to the flesh, to live after the flesh, and would still go in that direction. Small wonder that such a force would drive a man to death and hell. So Paul would emphasize the fact that we are not debtors to the flesh, but rather are debtors to the Spirit. It's the Spirit, you see, that ministers life and peace to our souls by ministering Christ to our hearts. It's the Spirit that frees us from the law of sin and death. It's the Spirit that quickens our mortal bodies from the grave. It's the Spirit that guides and directs us, that ministers assurance to our hearts that we are indeed children of the living God. It's the Spirit that moves us to cry, Abba, Father, and who moves us to groan within in anticipation of the redemption of our bodies. It is the Spirit that helps our infirmities and makes intercession for us. And so we're indebted to the Spirit and not to the flesh. But this raises then the question, Okay, I, I see Paul's point. I'm indebted not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. How do I pay such a debt as this? How do I pay the debt to the Spirit? We are indebted to the Spirit, not to the flesh. How is such a debt to be paid? And the answer is very simply, it's to be paid by cooperating with the Spirit. Look at verse 13, chapter 8. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. We mortify the deeds of the body through the Spirit. But what I want you to see from the verse is the precision of the doctrine of sanctification. It is through the Spirit. It is with the Spirit's help. It is with complete dependence upon the Spirit that we mortify the deeds of the body. But would you note also that it is ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. And so there is an obligation being placed on the believer himself. You do this. You do it through the Spirit, to be sure, but you do it. It's something that you do, not in your own power, obviously. You must have the Spirit, but you do it by the Spirit. We're dependent on the Spirit, but we are actively working with the Spirit of Christ. That's something that needs to be ever borne in mind. When it comes to justification, there is nothing for you to do. It's yours but to receive. When it comes to our adoption, nothing for you to do. It's a status change that is made by virtue of who you are in Christ. When it comes to sanctification, however, there is a part that you play. We are engaged in the practice 
with the help of the Spirit. Look at verse 15. We see the same principle again. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is through the spirit of adoption that we cry. It is as we ourselves groan for the redemption within to be consummated, we do the groaning. We do so because we possess the first fruits of the Spirit in recognizing this active role of the believer in salvation. Paul wrote to the Philippians that they were to work out your own salvation, for it is the Spirit of God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. Now I'll grant you that verse can be and undoubtedly has been twisted and distorted as if to imply you have to work for your salvation. That's not at all what the apostle has in mind. I like the way one, I think it was a professor I probably sat under years ago. He said what the verse really says or how it can really be interpreted is to put your salvation to work. Not to work for it, but put it to work. For it is the Spirit of God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is the evidence for the Spirit's work in your heart? Well, it is simply this. Your will is going to gain strength. Your desire is going to become stronger uh, to pay the debt to the Spirit and not to the flesh and to do God's good pleasure. I think we have to be careful at times as Calvinists that we can become uh, too passive in some aspects of salvation. We recognize the sovereignty of God. Okay, we recognize that salvation is all of the Lord. Not the case with sanctification. And I'm glad that our Westminster divines got it right in our shorter catechism. If you look at that section in the shorter catechism that deals with justification, adoption, and sanctification, you will note in the answers to those questions, justification is an act of God, Adoption is an act of God. Sanctification is a work of God's Spirit. A work that we participate in, in the Spirit's power. This truth, you know, becomes all the more striking in contrast to being passive than in the Christian walk. There are some that are waiting for the frills and thrills of some mystical experience and then thinking holiness and spirituality are gained from that experience. But brothers and sisters, we pay our debt to the Spirit by refusing to pay the flesh and by cooperating with the Spirit. As the battle becomes hot and you feel yourself caving in too easily to the flesh, you would do well to consider your debt. You're a debtor not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. And before we leave this point, I should point out to you that the payment of this debt is essential. And I want you to understand clearly what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that the payment is essential for earning salvation. We could never earn salvation. Why would you try to earn something that's freely given? But having said that, this debt nevertheless is essential. The payment of this debt to the Spirit is essential, arguably, for proving to yourselves and to others that salvation has indeed really taken place. Look at verse 1 again, chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The mark of a man who has escaped condemnation is that he'll pay this debt willingly and desirously. He walks not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Where the Spirit of Christ indwells the believer, he prompts that believer to pay his debt to the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is absent, the believer, so called, has little or no concern for the debt, but is content to continue to go on in the way of the flesh and in the way of the world. Look at verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Without a willingness to pay the debt to the Spirit, really a man has no right to consider himself a Christian. He's merely trying to escape, I suppose, the consequences of sin without feeling any obligation to escape the sin itself. And so let every man and woman examine their own hearts. Have you entered the battle against the flesh? Are you moved to pay your debt to the Spirit by praying to God as your Father? Do you groan under the sins that beset you? We are debtors not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. And where the Spirit dwells, this debt will most willingly be paid. It amounts to a debt of gratitude. I am that thankful to the Lord that he's enabled me to distinguish between things that are carnal, things that are holy, and things that are not. So that's the debt to the Spirit. One more area that Paul touches upon in the area of our indebtedness, and that is a debt to our spiritual contributors. We see the word debtor one more time, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. Paul writes, For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia, to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. This statement may be taken as something of an unusual statement for Paul to make especially when you consider that he's been stressing throughout this epistle the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
Or in other words, the Jew and the Gentile were both on the same spiritual plane. Let me illustrate that for you with some verses in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 28. Paul writes, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. The child of God then is identified by an inward working of the Spirit, rather than by a national association, which had been the case for thousands of years. Chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Those who have this inward working in their hearts are referred to as the seed. Paul is saying that the promise of inheriting the world belongs to all the seed, which includes Jews and Gentiles who have this much in common that they believe in Jesus Christ. One more passage, this one's in chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, where Paul, now in this section of Romans, is dealing with the issue of the Jews in particular. What about the Jews? What about those of Paul's nationality? Are they gone? Are they forsaken? Have the promises of God uh, become null and void to them? We'll look at what Paul says in answer to that anticipated objection. He writes in verse 6, Romans 9, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but an Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Children of promise counted for the seed. Isaac was a child of promise, miraculously born, promised to Abraham and Sarah. So can it be said of every child of God, that he's miraculously born from above, according to the covenant of promise between God the Father and God the Son. You could say that you and I, then, as Christians, are children of promise. We were promised by the Father to the Son if the Son would accomplish redemption by his life and by his death. And you know, when you keep that in mind, what Paul is actually saying about the Gentiles, it's not very hard to figure out why Paul came under such fire from the Jews. Why did they hate him? Was it just because he spoke of a Messiah they didn't believe in? Well, actually, there was much more to it than that. You consider that here was Paul, a Jewish missionary, going to Gentiles with Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, telling of a Jewish Messiah 
the Old Testament being filled with Jewish promises. And Paul now takes these things to the Gentiles and tells them that by believing in Christ, they have been grafted into this tree of Jewish heritage while the unbelieving Jews have been broken off. Oh my, the Jews hated Paul for that. Paul could see that the promises of God applied to a spiritual seed that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Our text, however, in chapter 15 and verse 27, points out that in spite of this unity, this spiritual unity between Jews and Gentiles and a single body, the Gentiles were nevertheless debtors to the Jews for salvation had come from them, and the lesson of the text becomes very simple. We acquire a debt to those that are instruments of God that are used to convey spiritual blessings to us. I remember several years ago, I was a student in our theological hall, as it was then called, and I was able to travel over to Ulster for the very first time. In fact, the thing I remember about it is it was my very first time flying to anywhere across the ocean to Ulster. That would have been uh, all along about 1985. And I was able to spend, I forget just how long it was, two or three weeks, but I was able to spend time in Ulster touring the various churches, then taking part in the minister's week of prayer over in Ulster. That was back before we even had a minister's week of prayer of our own in the United States. And one of the greatest thrills to my soul was having the opportunity to be there and acknowledge what I took to be a debt of gratitude to the people of Northern Ireland for sending some of their best men to America, men like Dr. Cairns, and John Greer, and Frank McClelland, and others, all Ulstermen. And I was happy and thrilled, and I've been able to do this twice more in the ensuing years, and I never forget to do it any occasion I have. If I go over there again, I'm sure I'll do it again. Acknowledge a debt of gratitude to them for their willingness to send some of their best men over here to the United States in order to preach the gospel. In the case of our text, the debt was paid materially by an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. We find Paul receiving such a gift from the Philippians, a material gift in Philippians 4. He rejoiced to receive such a gift, not so much because of the gift itself, but because of what that gift revealed about the compassion and the dedication of the Philippian believers. The payment of this debt, done with the right spirit, indicated to Paul a high level of spiritual maturity on the part of the saints at Philippi. The Corinthians... On the other hand, didn't possess that level of maturity, and Paul refused to receive anything from them. He held this debt over them, however, in another way. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And he's really hitting them now with a sense of debt, a sense of obligation. And here's how he would have it paid. Verse 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. He writes, Be ye followers of me. He would have the Corinthians, the, the saints at Corinth, pay their obligation to him, pay their debt to him by following him. And what was Paul doing, after all, but following Christ? Follow me as I follow Christ. So pay the debt to those that minister to you by following them as they follow Christ. And here's how a debt is paid to a teacher or a preacher, simply by following him in the gospel. This is not to say that we make any man a pope and follow him blindly, but it is to say that we follow him in prayer, we follow him in knowing Christ, we follow him in serving Christ, we follow him in seeking after Christ. Paul expresses the payment of this debt uh, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Oh, there is nothing so satisfying or rewarding to a teacher or a preacher to realize I've been used of God. It's humbling and it's satisfying to think that the Lord blessed his people through something that I would have brought out through his word. I don't know if I shared this with you. Perhaps I mentioned it to some. Wasn't that long ago I received an email from Isaac Manring, of all people. And uh, he was thanking me for some messages that I had preached many years ago that he still had fond memories of and that he still... Uh, felt he benefited from. I wrote him back and I said, you and I go back a long ways, Isaac. I remember visiting your parents when you were in Riley's Children's Hospital having a hole plugged in your heart uh, as, a, as a baby. I said, I, I'm afraid to ask you how old you are. He wrote me back. He's 23 years old now. So, but paying a debt of gratitude that way. And so we see then the debts of a justified sinner to the world to get out the gospel, to the Spirit, to follow Christ, to our spiritual contributors for their ministry of Christ to our hearts, and the thing that needs to be ever borne in mind underlying these debts is the knowledge of our sin debt being fully paid through the blood of Christ. Can you perceive this day something of becoming poor, Christ becoming poor, in order that you might be made rich? Oh, if you can perceive that, then through those riches you've gained from him, pay the debts of a justified sinner. Let's close then in prayer.
O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do acknowledge, dear God, that we owe Christ everything. He paid a debt that we could not pay. He rescued our souls from everlasting condemnation. O Lord, help us to pay our debt to him, a debt of gratitude and thanksgiving for the bountiful blessings that he's bestowed upon us. May we be ever watchful for opportunities to pay this debt by giving out the gospel. May we recognize that our debt is in no way to the flesh, but to the spirit. And may we pay our debts, O Lord, to those that have contributed to our spiritual well-being. So help us, Lord, to pay these debts from a right heart attitude of humble thanksgiving to Christ for who he is and what he's done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.